can rock and roll save your soul? Why do we need to be rewarded for doing what's right? And who wants to be a global citizen anyway? After years of epic dinner parties, long lunches, and boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. Cheers. Let's just roll. I, you know, I've got this guy. He's my guest. He's just bossy. He's got his notes. You know, he's already asking me to hold it before we get started. You know, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. We need this meeting. We need that meeting. I'm Nigel Barker. This is Shaken and Stirred. I'm here with my co-host, Tom Astor, who's mixed an incredible drink, which we'll get to in a second. But first, our guest today is the founder of arguably one of the best known and effective charitable foundations in the world, in my opinion, that deals with issues as diverse as health, education, female empowerment, water, sanitation, the environment, food and hunger, ending extreme poverty. I need to take a breath. Where most organizations take on just one issue or one area to tackle, you've decided, you have decided to take it all on. Hugh Evans, welcome to Shaken and Stirred, Global Citizens. My God, what an incredible organization it is. Well, thank you so much, Nigel. It's awesome to be here and I'm thrilled to spend time with you today and have an awesome conversation. Well, we've got a drink right here. We do. Greyhound. Okay, so grapefruit juice strangely became very popular between 1910 and 1930. Is that right? Yeah. Before that, it wasn't really, didn't feature in people's lives. Vodka didn't feature in people's lives before 1945, so this would have been drunk with gin. And between 1910 and 1930, in 1930 it appeared in the Savoy cocktail book. It was its first thing. If you put salt around the rim of the glass, it's a salty dog. Which, you know, salty dog. Or you can have it for breakfast. I'm a fond of the salty dog myself. And put sugar around the top and have it as a breakfast um, drink. Which obviously you've done. <laughs> which I, I mean, was, if you just have to look at him, he's actually the same color as a greyhound. Thanks. So, it's pink grapefruit. You know, so it's the pink grapefruit. You've obviously had several of these. I used to think of you as an Aperol Spritz, but yeah. from now on out, you will be known as the greyhound. Pink grapefruit. Thank you. Oh, Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. 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 So, Hugh, as we enjoy a drink, you know, I want to talk about global citizens, but first of all, before we start talking about global citizens, I want to talk about the fact that you've got three pieces of paper in front of you with loads of notes. And I just think that's fantastic that you're so organized, because this is, of course, a podcast. And if you're not watching and you're listening, which you probably are, I want you to know exactly what I'm vi- actually seeing right now, because people normally, they normally know who they are. They normally know what they do. And this is one of the most rehearsed. Life moves too fast for me. Oh, I, I, bull. I, <laughs> you are, and I, I was... Absolutely saying just how great a speaker you are, and you are. And this is why, though, too, because you're so well organized. Like, you really don't want to miss a beat. No. And I think that's super impressive. Well, thank you. I uh, I mean, you know, life is short. You've got to hit every single moment, and I think this moment matters. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you questions, which I hope are not on these pieces of paper in front of you. Now. I hope so. I'm going to have to dodge <laughs> around go, it. Go for it. But before we get there, let's talk about Global Citizens. I've, I've been to your concerts and I've seen the, what you can put on as far as a, an amazing concert. But obviously, that's not what Global Citizens is about. So tell us about Global Citizens. So Global Citizen is a worldwide movement of millions of citizens who take action to end extreme poverty by 2030. And... The thing that makes our mission unique is that we've set this goal that is shared with the United Nations and many other charitable organizations of eradicating extreme poverty from the face of the planet by 2030. And extreme poverty is defined as $1.90 per day or less. So those living 
really in the worst form of human suffering. And we focus on achieving the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and all of our members call on governments to make multi-billion dollar pledges to achieve the goal. So the festival really becomes this massive rallying moment where once a year, all of our members come together. Right, that's 60,000 people on the Great Lawn of Central Park during the UN General Assembly meeting. And those members have all earned their way into the festival. They don't pay to get on, right? That's right. With money, money. They use, they do good deeds. That's exactly right. So unlike, say, a Live 8 where you'd pay a few hundred dollars, you'd have an amazing night and you'd then oftentimes forget about it, we decided that we actually want to use action as your currency. So it was all digitally driven through an app or through the website. All of your actions earn you points and you use those points to come to the Global Citizen Festival for free. But in doing so, the power of it is that literally... Tens of thousands of our members will all call on a specific world leader to take action. And that world leader will be bombarded with 10,000 phone calls or 10,000 emails or 10,000 petition signatures. So that you really piss people off. <laughs> we, we, uh, so, I mean, fortunately, the world leaders are good sports. Oh, sure. And they're used to democracy at work. And uh, They're just uh, terrified uh, that some Bono or someone's going to get up there and sing about them and that, say something really embarrassing. Who, who, well, do, who do you decide which world leader to, to pick on, as it were? I mean, pick it, on it, de- it depends which issue. Um, so we work across food security, water and sanitation, gender equality. Uh, we work across global health, the environment. And some leaders are better than others on particular issues. So, for example, take the UK government where you're from. The UK is one of the most generous nations in the world as a proportion of its gross national income. So you give 0.7% of your gross national income in foreign aid, and that's you're actually a very effective giver. Whereas other countries, unfortunately, my own country, Australia, under the more conservative prime minister of Tony Abbott, cut $12 billion in foreign aid over the last five years. And so really our government deserves to be shamed what they did, whereas your government deserves to be applauded for what you've done. And so I think that... Long-distance calls cost a lot more money, so it's harder. (laughs) It really, it it totally depends The time difference is also a real pain in the butt. It gets loads of phone messages from the middle of the night, really pisses him off. Well, we're meant to be be a day ahead, but in this area, we're a day behind. And so I think that the... uh, it totally depends on what issue we're targeting, but we have a public policy team whose all expertise is on each of those issue areas. And so we work with all of our partners from the Gates Foundation through to UNICEF, through to Save the Children, through to CARE, through to you name it. And they're all the experts in each of these issue areas. And we'll go after a single world leader. And I'll give you one funny example that we worked on a couple of years ago. We, were, we had Stephen Colbert as the host mm-hmm. of the festival that year with Hugh Jackman. And uh, we launched what we called the Twitter Invasion of Norway where Stephen Colbert on his show, we went out and we called on every global citizen to all tweet the Prime Minister of Norway all at once, um, trying to get her to increase investment into girls' education. And she literally called me the next day and she said, Hugh, come to Oslo right away. And she sat opposite me like you and I sitting here and she said, Hugh, I'm in the middle of a local election. Will you turn the tweets off? I cannot see any tweets from the Norwegian people. I can only see the tweets from global citizens. When will it stop? So I said, well, you know, we can do that. We can turn it off, but but we really need you to make a commitment. She said, okay, I'm in. Sure enough, she got up on stage and committed $500 million to support girls' education. I remember that moment. Yeah. It was very impressive. Now I know how you did it. <laughs> so, I mean, well. Under duress. <laughs> you know, arm twisted behind the back. You know, it's, no, it's brilliant, though. I mean, this is the way we should be doing things. But, it's, you, you know, you have this, this, I guess, this timeline, 2030. But as you mentioned, some governments are easier than others. Some countries are easier than others. 
in order to achieve this goal realistically and I listen I understand we have to have goals and this is not to poo poo or to say you can't make it but I've worked in, in with charities and foundations for many many years and we've always set goals to end pediatric AIDS by 2020 or to do hit this thing to hit that target obviously we're probably not going to end poverty as we know it by 2030 but what is the I mean the, what is the, the actual aim because unless everyone helps you unless everyone gets on board how can you well we have to end extreme poverty by 2030 because otherwise one will have failed to achieve our mission and two more kids will suffer as a result well, so I don't accept failure as an option and obviously you believe that it, it's a bit like the polio thing isn't it it's the eradicate polio it's it's a real who, who would have thought that it could be done but it's that's been, an illness that's a, something that you can get a, a cure for but this is the human condition, and we're so selfish no, as people. But, but it's not, Nigel, it's not all forms of poverty because the notion itself is relative. It's the worst forms of poverty. No, sure. So, so take the great example you just gave of polio. When we started campaigning on that in 2011, there were 1,000 cases every single year of polio. Last year, just 33 cases. So in no, the last absolutely. seven years, it's gone from literally 1,000 people you know, being infected every single year down to 33. So we could eradicate polio. We can eradicate all these. But apples and oranges a little bit, right? I mean, it, it's, it's not exactly the same thing here. It's we, one indicator. It is an indicator. I, I guess I, I, and I, I'm playing devil's advocate. I know I'm putting you on the spot with a question no, like go. this. But I feel like, you know, when we have something like, you know, when people have a claim and we're going we're gonna to end these things, and, I, and I'm all for it. I'm absolutely 100% behind you. I'm going to try as hard as I can. And I'd like, let's hit it even earlier. Let's see what we can do. But I, when you have a president, for example, who's trying to build a wall between our two countries, between Mexico and, and the U.S., and there's poverty in the U.S. right on the border, um, in the in the in the in those horrible little border towns where people are starving, both on the Mexican side and the American side, and we're not even paying attention to to fix that. We're trying to build a wall for billions of dollars. It, I just find it hard to see how we're really going to end extreme poverty unless there's some fundamental shift in how human beings treat one another and love one another. Well, I, I think you, you're right. Human beings do need to treat one another with greater equity and do need to love each other more. But I think that if you think of history, I really do believe that those who look beyond their borders are on the right side of history. I think that politically it requires structural change and you need to really build a movement. But that's what Global Citizen's all about. We Absolutely. said we need 100 million members. Last year at our peak, we had 50 million global citizens taken action in a single month in the lead up to the Global Citizen Mandela 100 Festival in South Africa that Beyonce and Jay-Z headlined. And we know we've got to double that. So we've got to, we've got to continue to grow. We're by no means near our goal. We've got only 11 years to go to achieve that goal. But the, the point that you made earlier is really important because when I was born in 1983, 52% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. And in those days, people said, we'd never halve extreme poverty by 2015. It would be impossible. But sure enough, the world achieved that goal because they came together. True. And now there's less than 10% of the world's population who live in extreme poverty. So you're right. It's very hard, very ambitious. It's a $260 billion a year challenge at least. Currently, the world only gives $150 billion per year if you mm -hmm. add up all the money given by all the OECD countries. It's not going to be a given by any stretch of the imagination. But... If we truly make it our mission, my approach is failure is not an option. If we need to do whatever it takes, we need to have the hardest possible conversations to get there. And I think that that means being brutally honest about what it will take, having really frank conversations with political leaders, with business leaders, making sure business is as much part of the process as political leaders, 
and making sure that we're mobilizing the general public en masse, which is our mission. And you do that so well. And by the way, I'm 100% behind you. And I think we, everybody listening here is probably 100% behind you. And if you're not a global citizen already, you should definitely go online and find out what they're doing and how to actually sign up and get involved because there's so many amazing missions that you support. And as I listed at the beginning, it's not, there's really a cause for everyone that, 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 that interests someone at some level, which I think is one of the most amazing things that you've done. And when I, I follow you on Twitter as well, and it's, you know, every single major issue that's out there, you're talking about it. You're on it. You're, you know, supporting them. You're sort of showing solidarity. And I, I find that extraordinary because almost every other organization has one issue. It's polio or it's HIV or it's water. You know, it's famine. And I get that, too, because it's very specific, very, very direct, important. very important. Mm. But you sort of are a sort of umbrella overall, a lot of these issues to sort of bring it all together because all of them affect that extreme poverty. That's right. And extreme and global citizen at the end of the day is a platform. We said that when we set out, we wanted to make the end of extreme poverty, which encompasses all the sustainable development goals, our core of our mission. And so we have to partner with all the NGOs that are specialists in those areas. And they, many of them have joined our advisory board on our policy committee. Many of them are our friends and colleagues. We speak to our friends at UNICEF every single day. We speak to our friends at Save the Children every single day. We speak to our friends at the WHO every single day. We work with the Gates Foundation every single day. So this requires a, a true movement. It's not just about us. We're just a platform and, and everyone else, as you say, that specialist focus requires last mile delivery services for the poorest of the poor. Our hope is that the movement itself makes the pie bigger. We want governments to be more generous, to put in multi-billion dollar pledges, much more than they currently do, and also be very, very intelligent about the way they spend that money so that it gets to the people who need it most corruption-free and ultimately ends up in the hands of those that are extremely poor. You use celebrity in an incredible way. And it's amazing how you get not just sort of rock stars and pop stars, and, but entertainers. Hugh Jackman, as you mentioned, gets up there, hosts these incredible concerts. Um, but you get politicians, people who are just in the, in the forefront of, of really making a, ch a change. But certainly from an entertainment standpoint, why do you think it's so important to get celebrities to talk to the public about these issues? Well, I think that um, pop culture taps into the heartbeat of where society is at at any given moment. And if you've got an amazing artist that can inspire people in a language that speaks to them, it really rallies people. Like I, I've, isn't I, our obsession with celebrity also a part of our problem in the Western well, world in general? Like with the fact that we're obsessed with a, a celebrity, so perhaps for whatever they're doing, whatever their song is, whatever their music is, or the way they dress, the way they look, isn't that also a part of our one of our issues? Well, the way I approach it internally at our, at our staff and in, in our offices, I say, let's not talk about celebrity. Let's talk about artists and ambassadors. If an artist can use their creativity to inspire someone. And if someone wants to dive deep into a particular issue and become an ambassador for that issue, that's what we're working towards. I said the celebrity piece is irrelevant because celebrity points to the frivolous nature of, as you say, society. I actually think creativity is very powerful and artistry is very powerful. Let's tap into that and let's tap into people who are willing to deep dive. Let me give an example. Uh, 10 days ago, I took Rachel Brosnahan to Peru to focus on the um, issue of the Venezuelan refugee crisis. And while we were there, we saw the work of Education Cannot Wait, helping refugees who were coming over the border through Colombia, from Venezuela, 
650,000 people have resettled in Peru so far. And we went to the border town and Rachel is an incredible artist, an incredible performer, but she's also an incredible humanitarian. Just yesterday, she, with Global Citizens team, went all the way down to Washington, D.C. on the train and met with political leaders, met with uh, UN ambassadors focused on the particular countries we were trying to target. We were going after the UK, Germany, US, Japan, uh, one of, Ireland as well. She met with all the ambassadors. She met with the, the head of USAID. And they're now following the lead of what she was saying, as well as our policy team who are experts in this issue, and saying how can they contribute more. So, and why do world leaders decide to listen to actresses and, and sort of musicians and artists, if you will? Well, well, I think it's when common sense itself should tell them what to do. Well, I think it's not not every artist. I think it's I think it's artists that truly choose to invest in it. Like if you take someone like Angelina Jolie and her focus on the UNHCR, mm-hmm. she's invested a ton of time into that. Absolutely. Or if you take it's like a life's work, right? right? If you take the work that Chris Martin from Coldplay does with us, you know, he's spent he's spent countless hours in the field with us he attends board meetings he spends so much time in the office learning about the issue so it all depends on how deep an artist wants to go you know some some you know are cool just to perform a show whereas others really 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 want to dive into it so i think it's those that truly that must be a juggling act for you because no doubt at this point well you know i guess at the beginning you're out there trying to find artists who would like to be a part who who have the time and you know are willing but then they gets to a point where you are so cool you're getting the best artists in the world that everyone's lining lined up to be a part of this but they sort of sign on more for the cool factor sometimes potentially i don't know maybe i'm getting this wrong i'm, I'm I, playing I th- devil's advocate here but i i see it possibly as a potential problem well it could be but we, we we have a philosophy that we adhere to and our philosophy is every time we sit down with a new artist the first thing we ask them is not could you perform a show but could you champion an issue and so, like, when we sat down even with, with Cardi B last year. She was amazing, by the way. Amazing. And I said, you know, would you travel with us to Central America? Because that's where some of her family's from. Would you learn more about the challenges facing uh, communities in Central America around extreme poverty, around displaced peoples? Would you actually champion the issue? Because, it, yeah, we'd love you to perform in Central Park, but we'd equally love you to become a true ambassador. And fortunately, the first thing she said is, I'd love to. And we find more often than not that if someone's going to get involved with Global Citizen, they do it for the right reasons. They do it because they actually want to champion an issue. And so champion issue takes a lot of time. You've got to read up about it. You've got to educate yourself. You've got to be willing to travel to see the issue firsthand. Take take the issue of um, the refugee crisis that has hit uh, Bangladesh as a result of refugees leaving Myanmar from the persecution of, of the Rohingya in mm-hmm. Cox's Bazaar. You know, that's, that's an immensely challenging humanitarian crisis right now. You have to be willing to travel to the field, to, sp- to meet with the people, to understand the real issues, to understand the political dynamics, you know, which political players are on which side of the equation, which are on the other side, what's, what's at play. And so I think that we find much more often than not that artists are willing to go, you know what, I'm going to really get involved in that particular issue. And I'm going to champion it right through to the end. And I also think it's very smart because ultimately yeah. the reality is the world and certainly the, the world's press will 
chime in on a story when there's someone very famous connected to it as well. And unfortunately, whether that may be the case or not, because we, we realized something very specific like the Bangladeshi crisis, which was all over the press just, you know, a year or so ago, but sort of dropped out of the press. It's not as much of a headline anymore, yet the issue is just as big, in fact, worse. You know, and that happens over and over again. You see these really serious issues. They become sort of, they're sort of in vogue in the press, and then they drop out. But by attaching a celebrity and then putting them back in there, you're like, oh, wait a second. Everyone who's a Cardi B fan and everyone who would think, why would Cardi B be going to you know, this place or that place? They, they refocus on that issue in that area. Do you yeah. think it scares the, the um, you know, you, you go to uh, Myanmar or somewhere like that, they start scaring the generals as well if they think, hang on a minute, you know, we've got this person coming over. If we kick up a stink and start, you know, you know not, not, not paying attention, just, you know, it's going to cause more world focus on their whatever whatever they're up to. I mean, do you think that it has an effect? Does it galvanize people who otherwise wouldn't play ball into playing ball by having this celebrity situation on their hands? I'm I'm certainly of the view that regardless of whether you're a, you're a uh, democracy or not, attention and the way in which your nation is perceived in the rest of the world is always critically important. So, whether you're North Korea or South Korea. Um, democracy or authoritarian regime both care about their perception and how they're perceived on the world stage in different to different degrees and in different ways and it, it often expresses itself entirely differently but if you shine a light on something and expose what's happening in the geopolitical dynamic people shuffle to try to be on the right side of history and also people are afraid if they're backing a dictator that might be prosecuted for war crimes in the future even if you even if you you know, end up having to back them subversively as opposed to overtly, I think generally it changes society. And so, yeah, I think it has a huge impact. It takes time. Like everything in life, it takes time. But yeah, it definitely does. How did you get started with Global Citizen? Take us back a little bit. So Global Citizen was founded in 2009. Um, and prior to that, it was in 2006, I, I was... Ever since I was 14 years old, I've been extremely passionate about these issues. When I spent time in the Philippines and then in India when I was 15 and then in South Africa when I was 18 and 19 years old. So um, wait a second, stop a second. What are you doing all over the world? <laughs> Let's get that for a moment. Wow, who travels the world like that? That was amazing. You went to all the, you were living in all those countries as a young man, as a kid. Yeah, so, so um, when I was 12 years old, first year of high school, a lady from an aid organization in Australia came and spoke at our school about raising money to support kids in the developing world. And when you're that age, you get excited about how you can make a difference. And sure. I put up my hand and I just started fundraising. And uh, our school ended up becoming the highest fundraising school in the country. And so I got sent to the Philippines to see their work firsthand. And there was a night that changed my life forever where I met a young kid by the name of Sonny Boy who lived his whole life on this slum in the center of Manila. And he'd literally lived on top of a rubbish dump, a community there where he was scavenging every single day to try to get bits of scrap metal, a piece of food and things so that he could recycle. Those slums in the Philippines in, in, in Manila are crazy. Was, was that what it was called, Smoky Mountain? Smoky Mountain, yeah. yeah. And, and, and uh, he took me to his house and we lay on his, this, because I've stayed the night there, we lay on this concrete slab with the smell of rubbish all around us and cockroaches crawling all over us. And I had an epiphany that night that it really was pure chance that I was born where I was born and he was born where he was born. And so I came back from that experience and I said, okay, I'm going to commit my life to trying to eradicate extreme poverty. But at that stage, I had no idea how to start. And so 
I admired what Mother Teresa did, and I said to my mum, could I apply for a scholarship to go and live in India for a year? And she wasn't into that idea at all. She said, I can't imagine she was. <laughs> and, and, but eventually she let me go, and I applied for the scholarship, got a full scholarship, went to live in the Himalayan mountains at a school called Woodstock School in Uttarakhand in northern India. Amazing. And that was the tipping point year for me because I, I was – Totally, to be honest, totally overwhelmed by the scale of extreme poverty. But in some way, because I got to work with Sisters of Charity each weekend and work with uh, the Tibetan refugees who'd come over the Himalayan mountains, and we were one of the first foothill mountain foothill communities that they'd arrive in, in, in Missouri, I got to work with these communities and I realized that actually we can make a huge impact. And then the next question became, well, how do you go to scale? Because... There were 700 million people who were homeless or slum dwellers in India. And I thought to myself, man, that's 39 times Australia's population. No, it's absurd. You know, like, where do you even begin? And so I I set the next few years as trying to challenge myself about how I could understand how you create change at scale. And we had this critical moment where I was in, I was studying law at the time. I was in my second or third year of university in Melbourne. And uh, the G20 was coming through Melbourne. And me and my mate Dan had this idea to run this small concert called the Make Poverty History Concert. And one day it exploded when Bono and Pearl Jam called me and said they wanted to headline our show. I thought it was a prank call when they called, but sure enough, they were legit. And they came on first and sang Neil Young's Rockin' in the Free World. And a a million Australians bought our Make Poverty History armband that day. And we only have 20 million people in Australia, so it became the largest ever youth movement. And that day, we convinced our, our soon-to-become Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, to double foreign aid. He, he increased foreign aid by $6.2 billion. It was the largest foreign aid increase in Australia's history. And I got a phone call the next day from Salil Shetty here in New York, and he was running the United Nations Millennium Campaign for the Secretary General. At that stage, it was Kofi Annan. And he said, Hugh, we've, we believe in what you guys are doing. We want to help you take it all around the world. And me and my mates had no idea what that meant at that stage. We were like, that's really flattering, but we don't know what that means. We we continued on with our study. I, I went to Cambridge to do my master's in international relations and economics because I thought that would be a good grounding. And while we were there, we set up our first small office of what was at that stage called the Global Poverty Project in 2009 right, right. In, uh, in London. And... Uh, my One of my best mates, Simon, and his wife, now wife, moved to the UK together. And we every day I would, would catch a train down from Cambridge to London and um, between university lectures and try to build By the way, team. you sound like James Bond at the moment. You know, yeah. if you, i got to say, I mean, I went down and went to Cambridge and then having been in India, <laughs> I mean, literally, I'm listening to you. I mean, you actually dressed like James Bond right now, too, in your sort of blue. And I'm t- I know I'm going a little off here, but I'm so impressed. I think I'm having a man crush right now, no. flushing or something. Are you feeling inadequate? I'm just feeling inadequate. No, I just am no. blown away that no, this story no. is ridiculous. I'm, I'm sure Nigel doesn't feel inadequate next to anyone. Oh, no, trust me. Right now, I'm just looking at you, listening to this story, going, "Oh my god!" Because your brother, as well, is is it runs uh, Nick runs Hopeland. What? I don't want to stop your story, but what the heck were your parents doing to you guys? What are they instilling to you, boys? They would produce two sons that that go on to sort of basically change the world. Well, I think I think my my parents both. The great thing about them is they're both from vastly different backgrounds. My mum is an antique jeweler, so very creative, and an, herself an entrepreneur. I really admire her because 
she managed to take my grandfather's business that was started in Melbourne and basically now runs it herself. And, uh, you know, with four brothers, she brought out, she bought out her four brothers, which is hard for any feat to do in any family business. And my dad, on the other hand, is completely different. He's a engineer, a doctor of hydrogeology. So he's one of the world's experts in groundwater. And so on issues like water and sanitation and how do you ensure that populations have access to clean drinking water, he's one of the best in the world. And so they, they're both so vastly different, but both, I think, instill different values. One is the value of entrepreneurship and trying to build things from scratch. And the other one is a, a technical discipline, which is, he always said, Hugh, get a real job. You're not really you know, educated until you've either become a doctor, a lawyer, or, or an engineer. So he was very, like. he was very, uh, very, very um, adamant that I had to finish all of my schooling. And he used to say, you've got to have something back to, to fall back on. He actually didn't even believe our work was real until after the Make Poverty History concert when millions of people were involved. He thought up until that point it was, it was just uh, a nice idea. Chat. Can I ask you a question? Do, do you, early on when you were, um, before you went to, Philippines, you were involved with, was the school you were at, was it the, those, those scholarships that were being offered for you to go and visit places, was it, were they kind of Christian, was there, was there a, was your school, were they Christian scholarships or was it because you, early on you had an Anglican church involved in, in, in fundraising and, and doing all that, was it backed by a sort of fake Christian um, philosophy initially or so does that still sort of, is that still behind what, so you know, so I, I believe that um, there's a universal value, which is, to, as you said earlier, to love one another, Nigel. I think that, mm -hmm. that, that at the heart of all of humanity is this idea that we should all love one another. And I think that whether you think about virtues like justice or charity or, or care and concern for your fellow human being or equity, why are we created equal to one another, I think all of those values are at the heart of humanity. My, me personally, I grew up in a Christian tradition, um, but I always found that it was, I've always found wherever I've gone in the world, whether I, like I spent a month in Noblinka, which is uh, in Dharamsala, where the, the um, Tibetan tradition was born, and um, you've got uh, the Dalai Lama running and uh, the monastery and 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 also the monkhood and in that in that tradition i found still a universal value which is a care and concern for humanity and i think whether you believe in a monotheistic tradition or a polytheistic tradition wherever you come from i think there is this universal idea that frankly we need to love each other more and it, care for each other more. it's like you're going around the world gathering these most extraordinary people and sort of experiencing what the world is like for everyone because ultimately you know most people their idea of the world is their own town their own country their own backyard they don't have any real global idea i mean you can read about it you can look it on the internet but to really experience it hands-on to go to the slum to sleep in the slum to feel the cockroaches on your body to go to a temple, you know, in Tibet, to, then to, to contrast that with being educated in Cambridge in England and putting all that together. I mean, it, it's almost as if at this point now with global citizens and, and the numbers that you have, it's almost like a crusade in a way, a crusade to end this sort of this, the poverty in this, at this level. Well, I think, I think there's two, two um, important things to fight for. One is the end of extreme poverty. But I think there's also, as you like partly highlighted earlier in our conversation, I think there's this kind of other big idea, which is 
do we want to be known as a society that builds bigger walls or a society that builds bigger bridges? And I think that global citizen at its core is on the side of history that says we didn't deserve to be born where we're born. That is pure chance, or as Warren Buffett calls it, the ovarian lottery. That pure chance means that if we happen to be born in a place that is more affluent or we get a better education or we then yeah, you do have a moral responsibility to help those who haven't. Now, how do you do so in a responsible fashion? Well, that's when good public policy comes in. But I think that the the the, the value set that we're born with either makes us feel entitled to the privilege that we're given or responsible for the privilege that we're given. And I certainly opt in the second camp that if you happen to have an amazing opportunity in life, then you have a huge responsibility to channel that in any way you can positively to change the world for good. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a very Christian family. Um, you know, my, my father would always, was always preaching to us. And in fact, he created a school that was called Ties. Um, and that was all about connecting all people from all over the world together. Oh, wow. It was called the International Community School Ties. And wow. he actually created a passport, which was called the One World Passport. Oh, wow. That he issued to everybody who That's went to amazing. the school. They all got a passport. They were under one school. One, one country, one, one passport for everyone. Incredible. And he hated any borders between any countries. And, and so I, when, wow. I, when I first heard of Global Citizen, it, it, for me, it was this sort of revelation of like, oh my God, I grew up with a father who preached all about how we had to, to get rid of walls, get rid of borders. We were all together. It was one world, you know, and we had various foster children living with us from Africa. And I grew up as a kid from um, the Middle East. Wow. As a kid, and, and I myself am Sri Lankan and, and English and Portuguese. So th- we, there was that feeling of, a, of, a, of a being a global citizen anyway, because mm. I didn't identify with necessarily being English. Mm. Um, you know, the world is changing. And, and certainly back then when I was a kid, I was a bit of an unusual child because there weren't many mixed cross, you know, sort of half and half children. Half caste is what we were called back then. Of course, now it's, you know, the world is much more blended and certainly in a country like America. Absolutely. Do you feel, though, that, you know, certain countries are fighting you against this? Because it's not this situation that we have in America, this blended community. Certainly, in certain, you know, obviously in, the, in Europe, there are many countries which have blended as well. And I spend a lot of time in Amsterdam and I see, you know, a very multi-ethnic community there. But many places in the world, that's not the case. And it's, they, they feel like they love their walls, they love their barriers, and they don't want people in, and they don't like to, to bring people in. Well, I think um, being proud of where you come from 40 minutes. is not the antithesis of being a global citizen. I can be proudly Australian and love how beautiful Australia is and love the fact that I had an amazing education, and then I actually want to make Australia even better I can. All those are not mutually exclusive with being a global citizen. The two work, I believe, beautifully hand in hand. The question, again, comes to one of stewardship. To what degree do you consider the privilege that you've given gives you a moral responsibility to create change in the world? Or do you believe it gives you an entitlement that you deserved it by some virtue that you happen to be better or more superior or something of that nature, which I consider, frankly, complete and utter rubbish. Agreed. And so I, I think that at the, at the heart of this discussion, you know, and you see it with Brexit, you see it, as you pointed out, with Trump and the wall, there is a last hurrah of extreme nationalism that points to this idea that 
You love know. that you're calling it a last hurrah. I mean, I, I agree. I hope it is a last hurrah, and I'm certainly fighting for that, and, and I'm going to hedge my bets on that side of the argument. But Well, well it, it kind of has to be, because think about it. We, we've Think about, one, even how much the UK is struggling to even get a single Brexit deal right now, and, and they can't even organize themselves around this idea. Two, the fact is, you know, the UK is not about to turn off the internet and disconnect from the rest of the world. Three, more people in the UK are getting passports and want to travel rather than less. So what by whatever way you look at it... That's because they're terrified they're not going to be allowed in anywhere else, well, right? And, 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 and so they should be yes. because the values that we put out are the values that we get back. But actually, when you say last to right, it's interesting because, again, with the Brexit thing, um, was it something like um, 75% of uh, people who voted out were, 70, were 65 years and older? Exactly. Seventy-five percent of people who voted stay in were twenty-five years and younger. Exactly. So that's your last hurrah. That's your and, last. and they've already think quarter of a million people who voted out are already dead. I mean, that is that someone wow. said the other day. Someone was like two hundred thousand people uh, are probably already dead who who voted out. Really, it's like um, condemning the future generation yeah, to, it is. to a complete, policy yeah, that yeah, you it's a last ha- don't even have to live with the consequences last, yourself. That's their last hurrah, as, as you say. You know, like that. Put your stamp on that without exactly without considering what's what you're leaving behind. Yeah, and I, and I think that, you know, is there there will be, and I think this is where we have to have a nuance to this discussion, because there will be popularists who also, and rightly so, don't want the Davos elite who claim they're globalists to be their representation of globalization. Because often that Davos elite is so out of touch with the reality of human suffering with the reality of the disintegration of the middle class, if you really, really, really want to be a true global citizen, you have to understand what the people want. And, and, and so I think that popularism cannot be equated with nationalism and isolationism, xenophobia and the like. I think that popularism at its best could signal that the world needs to become more equal. I saw this great cover article that one of our board members wrote. He's the editor of Forbes, and he wrote The mm. Reimagining of Capitalism. It's out this month. Right. And he talks and he, he interviews several billionaires who say, they ask the question, should billionaires even exist or is that a policy failure? No. They ask, you know, do we as billionaires have a different responsibility to actually behave differently? And and you see both sides of politics, left and right, jumping on this question of where where will the future of capitalism grow? If the middle class is disintegrating, that's a bad thing. You, we need a much stronger middle class if we're ultimately going to end extreme poverty and ensure equality. Well, everyone clout, clout, moving up into Or equity of opportunity. Exactly. Well, I mean, like you were just mentioning Manila a moment ago, and there's a situation where you have these ridiculously, I mean, just terrible, horrendous shanty towns you know, built of sort of corrugated iron right next to, you know, sort of beautiful high-rise high buildings and skyscrapers and malls, and they're just side by side. You just drive from one to the other, and it's as if no one's even noticing. Yeah, and, and, and there's this um, great, um, great book by um, ethicist Peter Singer where he talks about um, this idea of moral relativity. He says, if you see a kid fall into a pond over there, of course you're going to run in and try to pull the kid out of the pond. But if there's a kid on the other side of the planet who is ha- suffering an equally bad fate where they're literally drowning in poverty, why don't we act? Is it because we don't see them? And I think that in the Philippines, to your point, you just happen to see them. You see the high rise, 
next to the shanty town and you're like you, you can't reconcile that image in your mind it just makes yes, no sense yes. but here you've got every high rise in new york we just you have to drive a little further to see poverty in appalachia and see the challenges that people face and so i think that i was just driving through you know, kingston in upstate new york and i could not believe the houses that you know okay i've been to detroit and i've seen sort of burnt out houses boarded up houses you know because of the economic um, issues they've had in Detroit and, and you know it looks like a, a nuclear bomb went off but it's actually the same upstate New York there are areas there where you drive mm. through and you feel terrified it's like they're almost like unpoliced areas yeah, yeah yeah you know I mean no doubt that maybe the police are there but it was shocking I could not believe it I had stopped and I was so surprised by what I was seeing and this is on my doorstep I, I have a house upstate New York and I'm like, okay, wow, this is here in New York State. Yeah, yeah. This is America, by the way. This is America. And I think that that's why, that's why our mission is universal. It can't just be rich nations support poor nations. The, the sustainable development goals that is our framework apply equally to every nation. So we need to ensure every kid here in America gets quality education. Every kid here in America gets quality health care. It just so happens that the majority of the extreme poor live in sub-Saharan Africa, pockets of Latin America and pockets of Southeast Asia. But that doesn't exclude the fact that there is poverty here in, in the United States. No, no, clearly, clearly. Look, you have also married a humanitarian. Oh, you know, Taniela, is it, I mean, she works for the NABU, NABU org? NABU.org? Yes. Yes. I mean, so how did you find her? Well, how is she the one? I'm changing subjects a little bit here, but I've met her. She's always a shining light. She sent me an email just yesterday oh, really? um, about something that you were doing. She was connected to us, and, and, and I thought it was very, very sweet. And, you know, she's got a great story as well. What drew the two of you together? So we were, we were actually both studying at Cambridge. Um, we were in the library, and uh, it was called the Social and Political Sciences Library. I, I looked across the room, and I thought, wow. She's extraordinarily beautiful. She is that, and for I, sure. Beautiful woman. And I, um, I asked her, could I take her out for a, a lunch? And a lunch became dinner. And um, we ended up just having the most amazing conversation. And I, I fell in love. I fell in love. And I, uh, I um, about a year and a half later, asked her if she would marry me. And um, the day after our honeymoon, we actually moved to New York City. So for the entire duration of our of our marriage, we've lived here. But, you know, she's doing extraordinary work. She runs Nabu.org. And to tell you just a little bit about what that does. So it was very, very smart initiative. She discovered that, like, in the past, everyone would send books to the developing world, thinking that that would provide education for libraries and schools. But most of those books were written not in the native language that people actually needed. And by the time the book get, got there, half of it would have, you know, rotted on the boat that it was traveling on. And so you'd end up with both bad quality literature with, in the wrong language right, in right, the wrong yeah, country. Sure. And so she created Nabu.org, which is essentially an app-based technology. Because the thing about extreme poverty is that most people in the developing world still have access to some form of telephone, whether it's a smartphone or a souped up uh, dumb phone, we call it, where you basically can have access to some features, you can download the nabu.org app. So across Rwanda right now, she literally has this dashboard where in all the schools, people are, are reading literature in Kinwa, Rwanda, in local language. Same thing Amazing. in Haitian Creole she wow. does. So this is all local language. And what they've done is they've been reviving 
the local publishing market through digital literature. So it's enabling all these Creole writers in Haiti and Kenwa Rwanda writers in, in, in Rwanda to actually write and publish again. Without actually printing them. Without, without actually printing it. Because and ultimately, to, to, to end extreme poverty, you have to educate the next generation to take care of themselves. I mean, they have to be able to do it themselves. They can't, it can't be done from other countries stepping in and giving them water or food or you know, su- su- supplying support. They have to do it themselves, right? So that's why it's so genius. I love this idea because you're really giving them the tools that they, they don't have otherwise. Yeah. Some, someone said to me the other day that if you trace back all of the challenges of development, it all comes back to education. And I think there's some truth to that because while there's no real sil- silver bullet in, in the end of extreme poverty, education, I think, comes the closest because, you know, obviously the whole teach man to fish thing, but, but I think far more deeper and more profound than that is it's about giving people choice and self-determination to be able to strengthen their own economy, to build their own future. The challenge then just becomes how do you give people access to markets so if you've developed a product, if you've developed a service, if you've developed a skill, how do you access a market in an equitable way so that then you can really lift yourself out of poverty? How do you see global citizens evolving at this point? I mean, you know, you are at this point right now, you've got 2030, the clock is ticking. Where do you see it changing? What is the next revolution? You just did an incredible concert in Johannesburg. That was very, very special and probably one of the most amazing concerts of all time. What's next? So this year, 2019, is our 10th anniversary as an organization. And so we've decided deliberately to take a step back and we're going to reimagine the whole organization this year. So we're looking at um, reimagining what we do in, in, with Global Citizen in Central Park. That's going to be a new format this year. We're going to be reimagining a new format called the Global Citizen Prize. We're releasing our first ever television series on National Geographic called Activate, which is a six-part series that follows each of our campaigns from start to finish. That's brilliant. Um, one, one episode is, is headed by our friend Hugh Jackman. The other episode is headed by Usher and Common. One episode by Rachel Brosnahan and Gail King. One episode by Chris Martin and Pharrell. Each of these episodes is fronted by one of our ambassadors covering each one of the issue areas. And, uh, but more importantly, we're asking ourselves, okay, so if we've got this bigger membership, how could that be used in, in a way that truly makes a, a lasting impact? How could we even disrupt what Global Citizen does at our core? Because when we set it out, we didn't say we had to be an advocacy organization or we had to do a big concert or we had to do this or that. We said we'll do whatever it takes to end extreme poverty. So we've got a board meeting next week where all of our boards coming together. I'm super excited to hear everyone's ideas about what will it take to reinvent because on our board, we've got some amazing people from finance, people like Chris Stadler as our chairman from CVC or Mike Anders from Iconic or, you know, John McGrew from Apex, really great people in finance that can help us think through how can financial tools more effectively be used to help the poor? Where are the gaps in the financing funds? You've got the global fund over here to fight HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis. You've got, you know, the the water and sanitation supply coalition over here. You've got um, GPEI to your point earlier on polio eradication with uh, the CDC and WHO. Where are the gaps? Are the gaps in gender equality? Are the gaps in getting the private sector to give more? How can money more effectively be used to tackle these big issues? And so they're, they're the sorts of questions we're grappling with as an organization. And I'm just, there's never been a more exciting time to be part of this movement. I just am thrilled. Every day I get to go to work and we have an amazing, amazing team. But in addition to the killer, killer team we've got, it's an amazing board and 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 and, and, and members who truly believe in our mission. So I think that's where... We've got to use this year 
before 2020 because next year is a critical year. Did any of you see Bohemian Rhapsody over yes, the break? Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Okay, so Bohemian Rhapsody was held in 1985. So Live Aid, which it was right. based on, 1985 in response to the Ethiopian famine. I remember it well. 20 years later, 2005, was Live 8 with an 8. Mm-hmm. And why was it held there? Because it was five years into the Millennium Development Goals with 10 years to go to halve extreme poverty by, 20, by 2015. In 2015, on our stage in Central Park, we launched the Sustainable Development Goals. There that night was Mark Zuckerberg, Michelle Obama, Malala, Bono, the United Nations Secretary General. Everyone came together for this huge launch. This next year will mark the five-year point and a 10-year countdown to end extreme poverty by 2030. So it's going to be this one moment where everyone comes together and says, as a world, as a society, can we do all that it takes to achieve this great mission? And so we're going to gear up and make it our most spectacular year ever. That is just extraordinary. What, what, I, I can't say any more after that. I think you've just you've taken the wind out of everyone. That, congratulations on everything you've done. This is just, as you said, you know, really the beginning because you've got a, a road ahead of you that is quite a difficult one, a steep one. Um, the best exciting, of luck. Exciting, Very exciting. exciting. I mean, you're man- managing to rally all these extraordinary people together. I think that anyone who's listening to this, please you know, learn as much as you can about Global Citizen. They do incredible work and they also make it fun, which is the thing that you do so well. You, you turn something which could be you know, challenging into something which is just rewarding. And I think that is brilliant. Giving back, but receiving at the same time, genius. Congratulations on everything you've done. Thank My you for having you. me. It Thank really is much. awesome to speak with you today. I really enjoyed it. You've left us all shaken yeah. and stirred. I yeah. Amazing. Exciting. Exciting. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.